Okay, so you're going to need a Bible in your hands um, for this morning. There are some being brought around at the back there. So if you don't have one, just raise a hand and um, we'll get one to you. Um, and as we get into this, I'm going to need someone just to knock out the lights when we get to the projector part of it. So if uh, maybe someone could just... Uh, thanks, that's great. All right, so um, good morning and well done for making it through the time change. Um, we just about managed that in our family. The kids didn't wake us up for a change. It was great. We had to wake them up. That's one out of 365. Yes. <laughs> anyway, here we go again, back into One Kings. And um, I hope you're getting more familiar now with this book and um, all that we're getting out of it. It really punches hard, doesn't it? Um, it's been a pleasure and a challenge for me to be back in these uh, chapters of the Bible again and hear them speaking with fresh uh, kind of energy and uh, uh, really stretching um, I think just the way that God wants them to. Um, We're going to find that there are many encouragements and many warnings as we go through, all the way through um, this series, and our our message this morning is no exception to that. But what we're going to do now is we're going to jump forward um, a little bit. Uh, So far, we've just been following the natural order of the kings from David to Solomon to Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and his kind of rival, Jeroboam. Um, But today, what we're going to do is we're going to just jump forward 60 years um, till we reach probably the most infamous king in the whole of the Old Testament. You probably know his name, King Ahab. And uh, that means that we're in for some fun today. Um, but before we dive in and read about him, what I wanted to do is just kind of sketch out and outline roughly what that 60 years looked like. Because um, as I've said before, Rod and I are really going for uh, trying to whet your appetite for the whole book of Kings. And so we want you to know where it is that we're dropping in. So with your permission, I'm going to spend the first 10 minutes or so just laying out framework of uh, what the history of this period looks like with a few lessons, and then we'll get into Ahab himself. So if we can uh, knock the lights down, um, we're going to do some of this on the screen here. Um, so um, putting together the dates that we have in our Old Testament text, um, this is a period, the Book of Kings, where we can start to get really definite about when things happened. Solomon likely died in 931 B.C., So all this is happening about a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. Um, And we all know from our Solomon sermon, don't we, that this is um, uh, when Solomon came to the throne. That was the second high point in the whole of Old Testament history. I guess the second shining moment where all of those promises to Abraham come together and we see God's people in God's place experiencing the blessing of his presence and his rule. Just like God ultimately intended. But it's just a picture, isn't it? Just a glimpse And straight away, we see the thing kind of collapse, um, just like it happened the first time. The kingdom all came together under Joshua, and then just kind of dies immediately. And then with Solomon, it's the same thing. All of those components, people, place, and blessing, all kind of go into the dumpster. Um, It's just like the Garden of Eden, actually, this one. The first thing to go wrong is God's people. Immediately, as soon as Solomon wanders away from God, we find the first thing that happens is that Uh, the nation of Israel starts to fight themselves. um, And they break into two separate competing factions. One in the north, uh, that's the kingdom led by Jeroboam, and one in the south, that's the kingdom led by uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam. So if we get that on the screen here, here's a map, hopefully. It's coming. Woo! Check it out. Thanks, Ronnie. So just to kind of give us a feeling for this, if you want to see on the map, the, um, this is, should be familiar. This is the Sea of Galilee. This is the Dead Sea. Here's the Jordan going down between them. Um, and the, the kingdom divided into two pieces on a line roughly like this. 
Okay? Everything south of there is ruled by Rehoboam from his capital in Jerusalem. Okay? And everything north of there is ruled by Jeroboam from his capital in the north of Samaria. Um, and this is the beginning of what we know from our New Testament, that division between the Jews and the Samaritans. That's where it all begins. And these are the pieces of territory that they both own. Now, what we're going to do in order to help us navigate our way through is go for a bit of a timeline. So um, this is going to show you roughly the dates. You can see kind of 930 here is when Solomon dies. Uh, the brown line at the top is the northern kings. The kind of pinky line at the bottom is the southern kings. Um, and something to help you navigate the book is just the names. Confusingly, before the split, all the kings are kings of Israel, the nation of Israel. But after the split, the northern kingdom took the name with them. So the northern kingdom is now called Israel. The southern kingdom has a different name. They're called Judah. But not to be outdone, the southern kingdom does take something with them from the original. They take the bloodline of David. And so if you look in here, you'll see I've put in this little kind of DNA string running through Rehoboam here. Because what we're going to see is that Rehoboam is the son of Solomon, and then the son of Rehoboam and the son of his son and so on follow on that Davidic line. And that's a really important piece for us as we go along. So north and south, Israel and Judah with the sons of David in the southern part of it. Okay, so we'll keep that on the screen and we're going to work our way through that as we move on through this kind of overview here. So we've got Jeroboam on the throne in the north, Rehoboam on the throne in the south. And we find that both of these guys led their people away from God just in different ways. Um, For Rehoboam, uh, the issue is idolatry. Uh, We find that his mum is one of Solomon's many foreign wives, a Canaanite lady. And uh, she brought all of her Canaanite gods with her when she married Solomon. And lo and behold, when Rehoboam, her son, grew up, he believed in all those Canaanite gods and took them out into Main Street, Judah. And the result was complete disaster. It's really striking. If you look at the text, within five years of Solomon's death, the southern kingdom has become so uh, weak and corrupt that they're overtaken uh, by the Egyptians who uh, invade uh, and they carry off as plunder all of the gold in Solomon's palace, all of the gold, beautiful articles and things that we saw in the temple. So isn't that striking? Solomon's body is hardly cold in the ground. And yet all that stuff that he sat so much store by, all gone. Just imagine how different it would have been if Solomon had been prepared just to continue and persist in submitting to the Lord. Imagine if he committed himself to be faithful to one woman, maybe to someone who attracted him, not just because she was the latest pin-up from Egypt, but because she was someone who knew the Lord, someone who would partner with him in raising their kids to know the Lord as well. But this is what happens if we think that we can be God ourselves. We can't bear the weight of it. Even the wisest of us can't bear the weight of it. Solomon thought that he knew best. He thought that he could handle marrying uh, many foreign women, and he couldn't, and it all went wrong. So that's Rehoboam in the south. But in the north, it's no better. If we've got idolatry in the south, we have um, uh, what you call syncretism in the north. And Rod opened that up last time with Jeroboam. Syncretism is the attempt to kind of build your own do-it-yourself version of worshipping the Lord. Uh, So for Jeroboam, it was golden calves in Bethel and Dan. Uh, just trying to make the whole thing a little bit more accessible, a bit more consumer-friendly. You know, it was really difficult to have to go trudging all the way to Jerusalem. Jeroboam tried to make that stuff easier. But in doing so, he totally failed 
to recognize the fact that the God of the Bible is not some equal that we can just negotiate with or morph according to our own preferences. He determines how he will be worshipped, not us. So anyway, from that point on, we can flesh out this succession fairly quickly, and we're helped by the fact that the author of Kings provides us with these little kind of microbiographies as we go through, so you can see whether or not the Kings get a kind of thumbs up or thumbs down. In fact, uh, just to help us, I have the thumbs up and thumbs down here, so red thumbs down are for bad Kings, so watch out for those. Green thumbs up are for the Kings who do a little bit better. Um, The first thing that we have on the southern side of it, after 17 years of Rehoboam, uh, we get his son Abijah. And his one-verse summary says this, 1 Kings 15, verse 3. Abijah committed all the sins of his father. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David, his forefather, had been. So in this southern line, because they're all sons of David, we see them all compared to the benchmark that David sets. uh, And it's not good. So we'll just get Abijah up here. There he is. Thumbs down, Abijah. Sorry. The only good news about him is he only lasts three years. Um, And then things change. Uh, When Abijah's son Asa takes the throne, we're told that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. So uh, you won't be surprised to see what that looks like. There we go. A little thumbs up for Asa. And um, he lasts for 41 years. So things start to get set now in a bit of a good direction. And actually, even with Asa's son, his son Jehoshaphat, again, gets one of those good verdicts, someone who tried at least to walk in the ways of David. So we can see that after a shaky start, the southern kingdom gets going in a reasonably stable direction. But on the northern side, things are different. Uh, You might remember way back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, the northern, uh, sorry, the, the people of Israel said to Samuel, Uh, We want a king over us so that we can be just like the other nations. And I imagine what they were hoping for was the kind of prestige and military reputation that the other nations had. But the truth about monarchies, and I know this because I'm British, um, is that (laughs) when you look throughout history, uh, they're a cutthroat business. What having a king, like all the other nations, really means is that you're plunging yourself into this constant series of dynastic battles where you've got different contenders for the throne slugging it out. Um, And back in this day, most royal families, most royal dynasties only lasted two or three generations before there was some kind of coup. Someone stepped up to the throne and would wipe out the previous king and all of his descendants in order to establish their new line. And that's exactly what we see on the northern side. So after Jeroboam, we get this guy, Nadab, thumbs down. Sorry, Nadab. Um, And um, he only lasts two years before he's overthrown by a nobody, someone with no connection to Jeroboam at all. His name aptly is called Basha. And uh, in 1 Kings 15, 29, we get his little microbiography. It said, as soon as Basha began to reign, he killed Jeroboam's whole family. He did not leave Jeroboam anyone that breathed but destroy them all. It's kind of striking, isn't it? After all that Jeroboam did to see what his legacy really was. It didn't last that long. So um, we'll get him up here. So Basha takes up the reins um, and he's on the throne for 24 years. And then his son Ella takes the throne. So we'll get him on. Still, thumbs downs all the way. Um, And Ella lasts only two years before, guess what happens? He's assassinated by another royal pretender. This time it's a guy called Zimri. 
And it's the same gruesome story. So when 1 Kings 16.11, we're told that as soon as Zimri began to reign and was seated on the throne, he killed off Basha's whole family. He didn't spare a single male, whether relative or friend. So can you see how brutal this is? And actually what we find in the story is that, I can't really show it on this scale, but Zimri only lasts seven days before he's then surrounded by his enemies and forced to commit suicide. So it's just really striking as we go through, isn't it? What real monarchy actually looks like. This is what it looks like to be like the other nations. So it turns out you have to be careful what you wish for, doesn't it? After Zimri, the northern kingdom then descended into civil war. For the next three years, they had two kings at the same time. Each one battling for control of the kingdom with dreadful loss of life among their population. uh, Before finally, one of the two, a guy called Omri, finally wins and he sits on the throne for nine more years. So we'll just pop him up here. So that's what it looks like to be like the surrounding nations. All of the other monarchies around them were experiencing the same thing and so did they. But it is kind of interesting, isn't it, what's happening when you see this and then compare it to the southern kingdom now. You see, in the 60 years between Solomon and Ahab, the northern kingdom managed to run through three different royal dynasties. But the southern kingdom had only one. And as we watch the story unfold, we'll see that it stays exactly the same way. The northern kingdom just keeps ticking through them, but the southern kingdom just keeps on going, handing the bloodline of David from father to son, from father to son. Why? It certainly wasn't because they were any better. If you look at the overall flow of things, I think you can make a case to say that the southern kings were worse. You might say it's coincidence. Um, But that gets a little bit hard to sustain after you see this thing lasting for 15 generations, all the way until the exile in Babylon. So to me, this is just a hint that even though the kingdom seems to be failing through all of these years, doesn't it? Actually, what we're seeing is that God is still in control. Remember, God said to David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And the the God that we worship the God that we serve, never makes a promise idly. And we can really see that right here in the history. So that brings us now all the way to Ahab. So let's just get him on the board. And you, tellingly, he gets the double thumbs down. Okay, that's, really, that's a bad scene. <laughs> He's the son of Omri. And we can see now that the kingdom has passed from Jeroboam to Nadab, from Nadab to Basha, from Basha to Ella, from Ella to Zimri, from Zimri to Omri. Six kings getting steadily worse on that northern side, steadily more brutal, steadily more determined to kind of cut all the links to God until we finally reach the seventh king. Now, we all know what seven means in the Bible. It's that kind of number of things reaching their perfection. So this seventh king brings the wickedness of the northern kingdom to its point of perfection. See, so far in these one-verse summaries on the northern side, we've been comparing the kings to Jeroboam. Basha, we're told, did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the ways of Jeroboam. Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely the ways of Jeroboam. But when we reach Ahab, we read this, that he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, But he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians. And he began to serve Baal and worship him. And that brings us to our text for today. Um, Like many of these kings that we're going to study together, there are no end of places that we could go. uh, And we'd really encourage you to go to those places that we're not going to go on a Sunday morning. 
Um, probably the most famous place uh, to read about Ahab is his confrontation with Elijah at, the, at Mount Carmel. You might remember the Sunday school story when fire falls on the altar of God. But I want to take you just a little bit further on in his story to a passage that just gives us a really kind of nasty insight into his heart, which is from 1 Kings chapter 21. So if you turn to that and then stand with me, we're going to read 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 1 through 22. All right, 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 1. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it's close to my palace. In exchange, I'll give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll pay you whatever it's worth. But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So Ahab went home sullen and angry because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, sell me your vineyard. Or if you prefer, I'll give you another vineyard in its place. But he said to me, I won't give you my vineyard. (laughs) Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth city with him. In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting. And seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. And then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and the nobles who lived in Naboth city did as Jezebel directed in the letters she had written them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. And then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and they stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, get up and take possession of the vineyard that Naboth the Jezreelite refused to sell to you. He's no longer alive, but dead. And Ahab heard that Naboth was dead. He got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. But then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Tishbite. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He's now in Naboth's vineyard, where he's gone to take possession of it. And say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? And then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Ahab said to Elijah, so you found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you've sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. He says, I'm going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I'll make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and like that of Basha, son of Ahijah, because you have aroused my anger and caused Israel to sin. Okay, that's our text for today, so take a seat. So I wonder what you make of that. 
The story has four main characters. Uh, We have Ahab, the king, Jezebel, his wife, Naboth, who has the misfortune to own a vineyard uh, next to Ahab's palace in Jezreel, uh, and then we have the prophet Elijah. Now, this is the first time in these stories that we've met a prophet, so let's just think a little bit now about what uh, that's all about. When we hear the word prophet, I guess many of us um, naturally think, okay, this is a guy whose job is to predict the future. And that's understandable because it's true, the prophets in the Old Testament do do quite a bit of that. Um, And also, when we talk about prophecies today, that's often what we mean, isn't it? But in the Old Testament, prophets have a much broader job, um, a much broader job description than just predicting the future. Their job is to be messengers from God. Sometimes their messages look forward to the future, that's true. But uh, much more often, they look at the present or the past The important factor is just where the messages come from. Prophets exist to bring God's opinions into the story. And as we go through these books of Kings, what we find God doing is often using his prophets to go in and critique the bad kings who are on the throne and show them uh, when they're not playing their roles right. So Samuel does it with Saul. Nathan does it with David. And now we have, I guess, the granddaddy of all the prophet versus king confrontations, uh, Elijah in the blue corner versus Ahab in the red corner. And um, the the story opens um, with this, uh, well, I guess the the thing we need to get is that the the trigger for all of this is this abuse of power uh, that uh, Ahab perpetrates on Naboth. And that's how the, the story opens with Ahab making the offer for Naboth's property in Jezreel. So actually we'll have the map back again and I'll just show you where this is happening. Okay. Just give that a refresh, Ronnie. Perfect. All right. So um, just so we know, this is our boundary between the north and the south. Northern capital is here in Samaria. That's where uh, Jeroboam's palace is. That's, he has a beautiful palace that's built there by his dad, Omri. But in our story, we find him up here in Jezreel, about 25 miles to the north. Um, and uh, we need to ask ourselves, look, you know, what's he doing here? Um, this isn't his main uh, residence. This is a kind of satellite home. So maybe we wonder, you know, is he up here working hard on local matters of state? Is he encouraging his officials or working hard in order to build local alliances, that kind of thing? Well, no. Uh, We find that he's daydreaming about owning a vegetable garden. Uh, He's sitting up on the roof of his uh, second home here with apparently nothing better to do, uh, looking out over the wall, and he sees a plot of land uh, right next to him that looks just perfect, a sweet little vineyard owned by his neighbor, Naboth. And so Ahab trots down to Naboth's house and makes him an offer. And it all seems very fair, doesn't it? He says, let me have your vineyard and I'll offer you a better one in exchange. Or money to compensate you. It's only when we realise that he leaves no third option, uh, no way for Naboth to keep the vineyard for himself, that we see the menace that's underneath that. And that's Ahab all over. But on the surface, at least, it seems like a reasonable proposal, doesn't it? To us, at least. But if we were reading this back when this was actually written, if we were 10th century BC Jews rather than 21st century AD uh, people living here in America, um, this wouldn't seem reasonable at all. You see, what Ahab's proposing here is deeply illegal. This is kind of alien to us now. 
But God's law for the Israelites living in the promised land was that property remained in the hands of the people who originally owned it. If you owned a farm in Israel, you owned it because your father owned it. and He owned it because his father owned it, all the way back to the person who first entered the land with Joshua who owned it. Even if an Israelite fell into poverty and had to sell themselves as a slave, God's law provided that their property would return to the family in the year of Jubilee. And it just shows us how dead set God was against uh, people accumulating these vast portfolios of land. So what Ahab's proposing here is a blatant violation of God's law, and Naboth knows it. And credit to him, he won't play the game. He won't sell. And Ahab ends up kind of stalking back to Samaria, looking really grumpy. We're told that he was sullen and angry, and that he lay on his bed sulking, refusing to eat. He's like a spoiled child, isn't he? It's almost hard to believe that this description of a king could make it into the Bible, and yet here it is. And this is where things turn really nasty. You see, the wicked reign of Ahab wasn't just a one-man show. In fact, in many ways, it wasn't even a one-man show. Ahab had a wicked wife called Jezebel. And now we find out what happens when she enters the story. You see, Jezebel finds Ahab moping around the palace, completely consumed with his own disappointment. And she asks him a very good question. She says, is this how you act as king over Israel? Isn't that exactly what we want to ask him to Weren't there more important things that Ahab needed to be doing? Weren't there any people in his kingdom who needed help? Weren't there any situations where he could step up and do some actual reigning and leading? But that isn't what Jezebel means at all. Jezebel is telling us that her vision of a king is a man who gets anything and everything he wants, whatever the cost. And if Ahab won't step up and play the man, then she will do it on his behalf. So with Ahab's kind of passive consent, she writes letters in his name and places his seal on them. She grasps hold of the reins that are just lying limp in his hands. And she puts in place this cold-blooded clinical plot to get Ahab what he wants. And we've got to remember here, this is just about a vegetable garden. You know, this is a, a passing fancy, isn't it? Ahab doesn't really strike me as the committed gardening type. And yet for this, Jezebel is prepared to sacrifice Naboth's life. And Ahab just closes his eyes and lets it happen all around him. So Jezebel organizes this community event in Jezreel. She has Naboth seated in a prominent position. And into this situation, she drops a pair of scoundrels. uh, Scoundrels that she doesn't seem to have any difficulty locating. It's telling, isn't it? She has them falsely accuse Naboth of cursing God and the king. And it's just amazing the scale of her boldness and uh, the sickness of this, isn't it? You know, Naboth is pretty much the only person we've seen in the text here who's prepared to stand up and uphold God's honor. And yet Jezebel has him accused of dishonoring God in his hometown and everyone goes along with it. And the result is that Naboth is stoned to death right there on the spot. Jezebel hears the news. She comes back to her husband completely unflustered. Naboth's death is just a transaction to her. He's just an obstacle that needs to be overcome. The kind of obstacle that real kings just walk right over. And then when Ahab hears, he just gets on his horse and rides off to uh, Jezreel to start gardening. So it's kind of chilling, isn't it? But like all these stories in the books of Kings, it leaves us asking the question, what are we supposed to do with it? Because although all this is history, we know that it's more than just history, don't we? 
We know that God is using the history of Israel uniquely to write his own story. He's using it to show us uh, the unfolding uh, kind of drama of his kingdom, to show us how broken we are, to show us how much we need him. And so we need to be able to read it that way. As we've seen throughout these king stories, the key to doing that is understanding the roles that the different characters play. So what role is Ahab given in the story here? Well, he's the king of Israel. So right out of the gates, we know that he's a king and he's a representative character. He stands in some way kind of in place of uh, his people. He's the living embodiment of them and their needs. And next, uh, our next task to understand this right is to say, well, is he playing that role in the story? Uh, is this one of these situations where we just see him kind of in private on his knees before God? In which case, maybe that teaches us something about how we should or shouldn't relate to God. Or are we seeing him actually reigning? Are we seeing him doing things as a king and exercising his authority as a king? And it's the latter, isn't it? Ahab is exerting his authority to rule. It's very sick. Uh, But Ahab is playing the part of the king of God's people. And so he's pointing us forward to our representative, to Jesus. He's pointing us forward to everything that Jesus isn't. And that's the first point where we can get really connected to this piece of scripture Because it's no small thing that our king is not like this. Think what it would be like to live under a king like Ahab. For the people in his kingdom, there was no security at all. Because the person on the throne, their representative, had no interest in them whatsoever. They were just a means to fill up his coffers, to prop up his ego. If for some interest, one uh, one of them found their interest getting in Ahab's way... Uh, Whether they had right on their side or not, well, that was a bad, bad place to be. And the truth is, there are many kings in our world that are just like that. Materialism is out there trying to get uh, the place uh, that God deserves on the throne of our hearts. But if we sign on that dotted line, we need to do that realizing that it's Ahab. It has got no more interest in us than Ahab had in the people that he ruled. Materialism is just a calculated response to the desires of Mr. or Mrs. Average. It doesn't care whether those desires are healthy or not. It doesn't care whether they will lead us towards life or towards death. And it won't come back to find us if we get lost somewhere, somehow along the way. If we need a king to actually do some ruling and some reigning, some leading in our lives, materialism invariably just plays the Ahab card, wandering off to the next project to the next vulnerable group of people who can be exploited and we're left to look after ourselves as best we can. But do we see that Jesus isn't like that? Jesus is the good shepherd. He knows every one of his sheep by name. When we need a king to do some leading and some ruling in our lives, we know that he will come after us and find us, even if we're just the one sheep that's got lost and 99 are still secure. Jesus lays his interest down at our feet. Jesus lays his life down at our feet. There's no comparison between the Ahabs that our world is offering us and the real king of God's kingdom. And the comparisons go on. Ahab was a hedonist. He was motivated by his own pleasure and comfort. And he sulked like a spoiled child when he didn't get what he wanted. He modelled discontentment. And as the king goes, so go the people. And do we see that out there in the world around us? You bet we do. 
Our culture is constantly trying to put this kind of king on the throne of our lives. We're constantly being offered tantalizing glimpses of satisfaction if we just get one more thing, if we just follow this diet or just drive this car or just get this vegetable garden. Our heroes, our Ahabs, are living that way. So why shouldn't we? The fact that the promise of satisfaction never actually materializes doesn't seem to matter. It's like the ultimate abusive relationship, isn't it? We're just being strung along and strung along from promise to promise with no actual satisfaction of those promises like fish on a hook. But do we see that Jesus isn't like that? Jesus is on the throne of, if Jesus is on the throne of our lives, we're free from that. We're free. Jesus turns the whole secular agenda on its head. He models and empowers contentment. And he's willing to be accountable for his promises. To follow him is to be freed from this kind of morally stunted, arrested development that leaves us sulking and throwing tantrums, demanding more and more. We stop being children and start being real men and real women when we follow him. We become what we're made to be, trusting that what we have is what we need in God's providence, finding satisfaction, not just searching desperately for it. And it goes on. We have this incredible confidence in our king that Ahab's people couldn't have, don't we? Look what he was prepared to do to get his way. Imagine you were one of the citizens in this city of Jezreel when this public fast was called and the whole town was got together. And you'd be thinking, hey, look, what is this? Is this the good Ahab doing something for the benefit of the community? Or is this the bad Ahab manipulating the situation to his own advantage? There would be no way of telling because Ahab was completely unpredictable. He'd obey the law one day if it suited his interests and break it the next for the same reason. And the world is offering us kings like that as well. Atheism is out there pitching for a place on the throne of our lives. Agnosticism is out there pitching for a place on the throne of our lives. And both of them have exactly this character. They're all about moral flexibility because they don't have any absolutes. They'll argue that human life is special one day to make the case for destroying the environment. And then they'll argue that human life isn't special at all the next day to make the case for abortion. It's Ahab through and through, inconsistent, unreliable, unaccountable. But do we see that Jesus isn't like that? Jesus is God. He is the absolute. And he holds himself to account against that absolute. He never changes. The checks that Jesus writes never bounce. If Jesus is sitting on the throne of our lives, we know where we stand. And that's an incredible gift, isn't it? Something that people in the world around us just don't know. We're not going to wake up one morning and find that Jesus is suddenly against us now and not for us. Jesus isn't going to suddenly need to make some course correction that's going to throw us under the bus. He controls all history and we are safe in his hands. So that's encouraging, isn't it? (laughs) Isn't that not encouraging? (laughs) Doesn't that just make you want to praise him? Just makes me want to fall on my knees and worship. The world doesn't have that kind of encouragement, but we do. But there's more for us here in this Ahab story. It's true that there are these encouragements, things for us to take away and dwell on. But there are also warnings here. You see, last time we talked about the way to read these bad kings, didn't we? And we realized that they point us forward to everything that Jesus, our ultimate representative, isn't. 
But another way to phrase that same idea is that the bad kings also point us backwards to everything that Adam, our original representative, is. And that's important. Because if Ahab shows us Adam, he shows every single one of us what we're striving and fighting and praying not to be. In Colossians, Paul urges us to take off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the image of its creator. And Ahab is here in the story, at least in part, to show us what that old self looks like. The links from uh, uh, Ahab and Jezebel back to Adam and Eve in our passage are really striking when you start to look at it. In, uh, in Genesis, you'll remember how all the trouble starts. Uh, Adam was made to be the servant leader in that marriage. He was given the privilege and the responsibility of laying down his interests at the feet of his bride and steering their relationship towards God. But what happened? He blew it, big time. The order that God intended was reversed. Adam abdicated the leadership of their marriage to Eve, and, he stepped in, and she stepped into the role of spokesperson. So it's striking, isn't it, when Satan appears on the scene looking for the right person to talk to, you know, the person who has the real authority to make the decisions, uh, the person who really affects the direction in which they're going, he walks straight past Adam and talks to his wife. So he planted that seed of doubt. Is this the way around things are really supposed to be? Striking, isn't it? Adam was right there. He knew that God had commanded him not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He received that command before Eve had even come onto the scene. So he was responsible for making sure that they kept it. And yet he sat back passively and let Eve take the reins. And Eve stepped up willingly, believing that things probably would be a lot better if she made the decisions. And now we see that whole thing replayed here in full technicolor in the story of Ahab and Jezebel. Like Adam, passivity is etched all across Ahab's story. There's a drought uh, that dominates the storyline in chapters 17 to 19 of 1 Kings. Uh, And in that, we find Ahab just sitting around worrying about who's going to feed his horses while his people out there are dying. And his wife Jezebel is left to take charge. She goes out killing every prophet of God that she can find. But she believes that only wholehearted devotion to Baal will bring back the rain. And what does Ahab have to say about that? Nothing. When the drought ends, Ahab then finds himself threatened by his Aramean neighbours. Their king, Ben-Hadad, demands that Ahab give up the riches in his palace. And Ahab just agrees. He doesn't have any ideas of his own. He doesn't lead his people to the Lord. In fact, it's his people who have to lead him. It's only when they come back and tell him he can't possibly give up so easily that he stands up to Ben-Hadad and fights. And in the war that follows, God intervenes twice to tell Ahab how to win. Twice Ahab sees the faithfulness of God with his own eyes. And yet when Ben-Hadad is finally defeated and he comes cringing, very persuasively asking for mercy back into Ahab's presence chamber, Ahab just lets him go, despite the fact that God warned him specifically to keep him under lock and key. Ahab is quick to forget how good God has been to him and how reliable God has proved himself to be. And in the end, that proves to be a fatal mistake. In the chapter after the one that we're reading here, Ben-Hadad's army come back. Nothing new, exactly the same tactics that they've had before, but they take Ahab's life and that's the end of his reign. So it's striking, isn't it? After this crescendo of wickedness on the northern side, 
all heading towards its perfection in the seventh king. I guess we're expecting some kind of uber-strong megalomaniac, aren't we? Some kind of epitome of vicious manhood. But what we actually get is this passive-aggressive weather vane. He doesn't seize control from God in some heroic gesture. He just lets God and all his goodness just kind of slide down the priority list when other more important, more persuasive forces start pushing him in another direction. He's maddeningly unproactive. He's easily led. He's swept along by each new powerful influence that comes into his life without imposing any sense of direction on it. That's the seventh king. That's what the epitome of evil looks like in God's eyes. Really striking, isn't it? And here we have it in our text in chapter 21 on steroids. Ahab hands over the control of this situation with Naboth's vineyard entirely to Jezebel. And she very willingly takes up the reins. He lets her freely wield his name and reputation. He lets her do things for which he bears the responsibility. And the whole thing comes to a point of focus in her choice of words. See, in the Old Testament, God uses uh, repeated phrases uh, in certain situations. Um, One of them is in play here. When God calls a prophet in the Old Testament, uh, he uses the Hebrew phrase kum lech, which means get up and go. So he says it to Jonah, get up and go to Nineveh. He says it to Jeremiah, get up and go to the Euphrates. He says it to Elijah earlier on in this Ahab story, get up and go to Zarephath. That's the way that God commands his prophets. God says, get up and they go. Now in 1 Kings 19, we get a little bit of a twist on that. You might remember after Elijah's showdown with the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, he gets scared and runs away. He travels into the wilderness, lies down under a bush and prays that he might die. And at that point in the story, God meets him with a new version of that call. An angel wakes him and says, Kum akol, Elijah, get up and eat. And from there, God gently leads him just this wonderful kind of pastoral series of uh, interventions from God, leading him to rest, to recovery and to a new ministry. But here in our story, which is just two chapters after that, The camera now focuses in on Ahab. He's frustrated that his plans for Naboth's vineyard aren't working out. And he lies down and he gives up, much like Elijah. But now look at what happens. It isn't an angel that comes to him. No, it's Jezebel. And in verse 7 of our passage, she uses exactly the same words that the angel uses to summon Elijah. Kum akol, Ahab, get up and eat. And in verse 15, after the deed is done and Naboth is dead, she uses the same formula again. Get up and take possession of the vineyard. So do you see what's going on here? Jezebel hasn't just become the husband in this marriage. Jezebel has stepped into the position of God for Ahab. She's using the same words that God uses to move his prophets around. Ahab goes where she wants him to go and he says what she wants him to say. And that's what's lying right at the heart of this pile of ruins that we're reading about here this morning. Ahab and Jezebel present us with a broken, diseased vision of manhood and womanhood. And it's relevant because it's right here inside each one of us. This is Adam and Eve. It's our old self. And it's rising up inside each one of us to claim us unless we make a deliberate, prayerful effort to resist it. In Colossians, Paul urges us to take off the old self with its practices and put on the new self which is being renewed in the image of its creator. Because if we're Christians, this is not our model anymore. 
We are not in Adam. We're in Christ. So we need to act like it. We need to become what we are. So why is it then that we find it so easy to reject or to ignore or to avoid the force of God's words like Ahab did? Well, it's because that's Adam and Eve in us. They're the representatives that we naturally choose. That's the glove that fits. And God enabling us, we need to resist it. Guys, why do we find it so easy to be passive and let life just happen to us at home? It's because that's Adam in us. That's the representative that we naturally choose. That's the glove that fits. And God enabling, we need to resist it. Gals, why do you find it so easy to step into the driving seat at home? It's because that's even you. That's the representative that you naturally choose. That's the glove that fits. And God enabling, you need to resist it. We need to talk about this stuff as couples. It isn't easy to get it right or to maintain it. We live in a fallen world. We live in Adam's world. And it's always dragging us back towards this reference point. I think it's particularly relevant for families with young kids. It's a blessing from God, isn't it, to be in that situation. But this is still Adam's world. That situation is still going to be dragging us back towards that reference point. And you can see how it works. You know, mum always is going to need help with things that are inevitably less familiar to dad. Can you just help with this diaper? Can you just help with this laundry? Can you just deal with this baby food? And if we're not careful, just the natural progress of events is going to lead us to a point where mum is frustrated that dad never seems to anticipate what's needed. And dad feels that he can never get it right no matter how many times he tries and ends up waiting for instructions. That's Adam and Eve. It's Ahab and Jezebel. And we need to have the courage just to dump out of it. Guys, we need to get ahead of this. We need to make time to sit down with our spouses and say, hey, this isn't where we want to be, is it? Let's talk about how we can get this under God's control. God has laid it on us to be the servant leaders of our homes. It doesn't mean that we have to know everything that our wives know or be able to do everything that our wives do. But it does mean that we need to be leading the conversation about who's responsible for what and making time to review our priorities together as a couple and discuss our goals. Because if we don't do that, the warning of this passage is fairly stark. Bad kings point us forward to everything that Jesus isn't. But they also point us backwards to everything that Adam is. And we have to choose which direction we want to face in. Is it going to be Adam who represents us? Or is it going to be Jesus? And I know with all my heart, I don't want it to be Adam. And the final part of our text really nails that. Because Adam always gets found out in the end, right? He shirks responsibility, but that doesn't change the fact that he is responsible. In the garden, it was Eve who took the fruit from the tree, but the Lord God still called to Adam when he came walking through the garden saying, where are you? And the same thing happens to Ahab. Elijah just blazes into this whole Naboth thing, which as far as Ahab knows at this point is still a kind of closely guarded secret, but Elijah just blows that up and exposes it. He knows, to, knows how to make an entrance, doesn't he? I love this, um, these words where he just says, have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Even though Ahab let Jezebel make all the big decisions, he's the one who finds himself face to face with Elijah and that's not the place you want to be. And Elijah continues, because you've sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, because you've given up control of yourself, 
because you've chosen passivity over responsibility. I'm going to bring disaster on you. I'll wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. And everything that Elijah foresaw happened. So it's true. Playing the Adam role is the easy option. But look where it's headed. We need to see that when Monday morning comes around for us and we go back to deciding or letting other people decide for us that we're going to be passengers in life, well, we will still be called to account. And that should draw us to the gospel because only the gospel provides us with a credible alternative. You see, if God had left things where they were after Adam and Eve fell, the world of Ahab and Jezebel would be our unavoidable destiny. Passivity, irresponsibility, discontent, grasping for power, all of it leading to this one-sided showdown with God. But in his mercy, God has given us the opportunity to switch sides. We can be represented by Jesus, by a king who's a leader, who's reliable, who's accountable, a king who keeps his promises and who will catch us when we fall, a king who leads us into contentment, a king who gave away his name and reputation and even his life to save us. Jesus can stand for us instead of Adam. We can be treated as if we were Jesus. We can be shaped bit by bit into his likeness as we trust him. That's the offer of the gospel. And every day we have to keep on choosing it. It isn't easy to do. It's a constant battle to put off the old self and put on the new. It's a fight all the way to the finish line. But if we lay down our lives at Jesus' feet, he can unlink us from Adam. He can break that connection to Ahab and Jezebel. Jesus can set us free. Let's pray. Jesus, this text just points us two directions and uh, we pray that you would help us to respond to that clear separation of uh, destinies. God, we look back to what we were and we just see, Lord, a picture of our own hearts. Lord, we are a mess. Lord, we are, as men, we are often passive or aggressive or uh, following that Adam mold. Lord, as... uh, People in your, um, in your world, we do such a bad job of uh, following the guidance that you give us. And Lord, we see the bad places to which it leads. But Lord Jesus, then we look forward and we see that miraculously there is something, someone so different. Someone in this world who is not like any other God who might claim our allegiance. A God who is not going to just drag us from place to place and then leave us hanging. God who's not just going to disappear have us jack up all our hopes and leave us without hope a God who's not just empowering more of of the same passivity but a God who's a leader a God who's accountable a God who's a lover, who's a friend, who sacrifices himself, Jesus I hope I'm speaking for every person in this room when I pray that would be our representative Jesus, that you would be our representative unlink us unlink us from that past Lord lift us lead us into that picture of your own character might we be represented by and led by all our days in Jesus name we pray